arrogance takes over people who's hunting the bird catches a small fish. Because in the year 198, after the Hijrah, examine the Savior that will return at the end of time. Yahya ibn Akhtham said, what is your name? He said, my name is Muhammad. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan ar-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. On October 2012, 2010, a young 26-year-old man by the name of Muhammad Bouaziz set himself on fire in protest in the streets of Tunisia and his self-sacrifice led to a series of protests within the streets of Tunisia that were later on developed into a revolution that overthrew a president which was in power for over two decades. The Arab Spring initiated in Tunisia was extremely contagious and it affected the streets of Egypt not long after the revolution which occurred in Tunisia. In Egypt, 850 people were killed, 6,000 people were wounded, but in the end, the result was a victory that overthrew a president that was in power for more than th three decades. Similarly, the Arab Spring began to take effect in the streets of Libya. <clears throat> For eight months and eight days, Libya witnessed a civil war. 30,000 people were killed, and over four to 5,000 people are still missing. However, they were able to capture and execute a nightmare a tyrant which was in power for more than 42 years. And the Arab Spring, since the year 2000 until, 2010 until today, continues to affect the Arab world and many of the Arab nations. Therefore, we find the effect of the Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia, in Yemen, in Syria, in Bahrain, in Jordan, and many of the Muslim states. And if we examine the Abrahamic faiths and the literature within the Abrahamic faiths, we realize that the events that are occurring around the world today are foretold, are embedded within the Abrahamic faiths and within the ideology and the Abrahamic faiths. The Abrahamic faiths with the majority of the population on the face of this earth have four main principles in common. The first principle that all the Abrahamic faiths have in common is the oneness of God, Tawheed. 
the monotheistic ornament. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes a reference to this notion within the Holy Quran. Allah states, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Qul ya ahla al-kitab, ta'alaw ila kalimatin sawa' baynana wa baynakum. Allah na'abuda illa Allah. Wa Allah nushrika bihi shay'a. Ya Rasulallah, tell the people of the book to come together, meaning members of the Abrahamic faith, to come together under one common belief, and that is the oneness of God. The second notion or principle within the Abrahamic faiths is prophethood. For all members of the Abrahamic faiths believe in individuals that were chosen by God to represent his religion. Individuals such as Solomon, Noah, David, Moses, Jesus are known to be prophets. Therefore the second principle is the principle of prophethood. The third are divine laws. Meaning all the Abrahamic faiths believe in set of laws sent by God to perfect their lives. Now some of those laws cannot change. Some of those laws remain the same since the beginning of time and the appointment of the very first prophet all the way to the last prophet. Laws that are embedded within the human nature. For example, the fact that lying and stealing and rape and murder and backbiting <clears throat> is an ugly act. And therefore there are sins. Those laws do not change. They are embedded in every faith. And that is why the Muslim philosophers have suggested such laws are known as the great sins. Because you really don't need a prophet to come and tell you that theft or murder is something prohibited. It's, some, it's an ugly act. And the other set of laws are changeable laws. The law, for example, in regards to fasting. The Jews were fasting, the Christians were fasting, and the Muslims fast as well. But the law of fasting can change. And it can be updated according to the prophet that comes with a new message, with a fresh message. Anyhow, the fourth principle in common is the principle of the end of time. Amongst the Abrahamic faiths, the fourth principle is the notion of the end of time. And the end of time is described similarly in all the Abrahamic faiths. It is a time of tribulation. It is a time of hardship. It is a time of economical downfalls. It is a time of natural disasters. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis. And indeed, it is a time of reform within the nations. And that is why when we examine the end of time and the Abrahamic faiths, we will automatically reach 
the cardinal and the principle that is shared by all of them. And that is the Savior who will return in the end of time to spread this earth with justice after it's been filled with injustice and tyranny. The notion of Imam al-Mahdi or the Mahdawiyyah. And if we were to examine the notion of Imam al-Mahdi or if we were to examine the Mahdawiyyah notion, there are many ways for us to examine the topic. One is to examine Imam al-Mahdi through, for example, the Abrahamic faiths. Or to examine Imam al-Mahdi through sources outside the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt. Another way to examine the notion of Imam al-Mahdi is to examine him through the hadiths within the school of Ahl al-Bayt. And at many times when we examine Imam al-Mahdi, unfortunately, we tend to quote Bukhari, we, can, we tend to quote Muslim, Tirmidhi, Nisa'i, Ibn Majah, Tarikh al-Kabir, and other sources that are outside the madhab of Ahl al-Bayt. But we rarely would hear of Imam al-Mahdi from the book of Al-Kafi, for example. Or we rarely would hear of Imam al-Mahdi from Bihar al-Anwar or Alam al-Majlisi. <clears throat> Another way to examine Imam al-Mahdi is to examine him through his position of Imamah. As in, to examine the Savior that will return in the end of time. Through the divine position that God has given him. That is why I'd like to examine the notion of Mahdawiyyah or Imam al-Mahdi in the following manner. Number one, does the age of Imam al-Mahdi play a role in his divine position of Imamah? Number two, is the Imam born and alive today? And number three, if he is born and alive today, what is our responsibility towards our Imam from the 27th sermon of Nahj al-Balagha? If we examine Imam al-Mahdi and his birth, and the fact that he was appointed as an imam, or he received imam at a very young age, we do not examine him in the year 205 when he was born. But we examine him at the year 195. Why? Because at the, up until the year 195, after the hijrah, the Shia had witnessed many individuals, many of their imams, to be born, I'm sorry, the year 255 when he was born. So many people, many Muslims, and particularly the Shia, they had seen their imams at the age of 20, they had seen their imams in the age 30, 40, 50, even 60. And the notion of imama was seen as a position that belonged to the most knowledgeable person present in the time. As in no one had doubt 
that Imam Ja'far ibn Muhammad al-Sadiq was the most, Allahumma salli ala Muhammad al was the most knowledgeable man present in his time. Until today, if you go and you examine the biography of Imam Ja'far ibn Muhammad, you realize that his students, who then later on became the Imams of the Madahib, witness that the sun had not shined on a man more knowledgeable than Ja'far ibn Muhammad. This is their statements. But Imam Ja'far ibn Muhammad, when he became the Imam, he was well in his 50s. When he received that grand position and when he founded his school. And when he had over a thousand students in his hawza. However, in the year 195, after the Hijrah, with the birth of Imam Muhammad al-Jawad, the Shia world was introduced to a new concept in understanding the position of Imam. Imam al-Ridha was well in his 40s, and people would come to him, they say to him, Ya ibn Rasulullah, who is the successor after you? Do you have a son? And Imam al-Ridha would say no. And I recall a very famous tradition and a historical event which took place in the year 198 after the Hijrah. Listen to the dates. The year 198 after the Hijrah. It was an, a very important event within the Shia ideology. Why? Because in the year 198 after the Hijrah, a delegation of Shia went to visit Imam al-Ridha. This delegation was made up of the Shia from all around the Muslim world. For a very important reason. Because just before the Imamah of Imam al-Ridha began, and at the time of Imam al-Ridha, the Shia minority was split into two main categories. One were the ones that believed in the 12th Imams and they continued to believe in Imam al-Ridha and they paid their allegiance to Imam al-Ridha and the other set of Shia who became the Waqafis and they stopped at the Imamah of Musa ibn Ja'far, the 7th Imam and they did not continue their journey with Imam al-Ridha. The reason being because Imam Musa ibn Ja'far was in prison and in the time of his occultation when he was in prison and he was not in, the Shia did not have access to him, he had appointed representatives and the representatives were collecting large amounts of wealth from the Shia. They were collecting their homes. And when they took out the body of Imam Musa ibn Ja'far in Baghdad, they collaborated and decided that they're going to announce Imam Musa ibn Ja'far as the Mahdi. And they said, Imam Musa ibn Ja'far has gone into occultation and he's going to appear back. And they did not give the wealth to Imam al-Ridha. So they founded the Waqafi Madhab. It's a time of struggle. In that time of struggle, Imam al-Ridha still does not have a, a son. There is no Imam after him. 
There is no successor. So on the year 198, this could have been the most important delegation of Shia that went to the, to the Imam al-Ridha. Some of them were from Persia. Some of them were from Hijaz. Some of them from Iraq. They gathered in the presence of Imam al-Ridha. And they said to him, Ya ibn Rasulullah, who is the Imam after you? Who is the Khalifa after you? You're well in your 40s. And Imam al-Ridha said to them, the Imam after me is Abu Ja'far. Who is Abu Ja'far? He told the servant to go and call Abu Ja'far. Moments later, a three-year-old child came into the room and Imam al-Ridha said, this is the Imam after me. A three-year-old boy. They said, this is Abu Ja'far? Imam al-Jawad, Imam al-Ridha had given him a nickname of Abu Ja'far. They said, Ya ibn Rasulullah, a three-year-old, you're appointing him as an imam and you want us in such a difficult situation to follow a three-year-old? And Imam al-Ridha then said his very famous lines, his very famous statement that the birth of Imam al-Jawad in the year 195 is indeed the greatest honor upon the followers of Ahlul Bayt. Why? Because it introduced them to the position of imamah that is not confined to the limits of age. And when Imam al-Ridha passed away, Imam al-Jawad was only eight years old. So imagine the situation. The first people that were testing him were the Shia themselves to see whether he has the knowledge to lead. And as he was a young boy, and the Imam, and the Khalifa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, narrations tell us that Al-Ma'mun Al-Abbasi, who was the murderer of his father, was, perused, was, was in the streets with his entourage, and Imam Al-Jawad was playing with some of his friends. <clears throat> and they ran away when they saw Ma'mun and his guard and his entourage. He had gone hunting. So he came and he spoke to Imam al-Jawad. He said to him, I saw all the kids running away, young boy. Why didn't you run away? Imam al-Jawad said to him for two reasons. Number one, I didn't do anything to run away. I didn't commit a crime. Number two, the street is wide enough for you to pass. There's no reason for me to run away from you. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, my name is Muhammad. Muhammad the son of whom? He said, the Muhammad the son of Ali. Ali the son of whom? Musa. And he continued until he realized he is the son of Ridha. And they would give him the name of Ibn al-Ridha. They would not even refer to him by his name, but they would refer to him by Ibn al-Ridha. So he knew that this was the successor of Ridha. He is Ibn al-Ridha. He went... Hunting and he came back and he said to him, Ibn al-Ridha, I'd like to ask you a question. He said to him, ask. He said, tell me what's in my right hand. He said to him, listen to the answer. Listen how Imam al-Jawad answered the question. He said to him, God created birds and those birds accompany the king. The king goes hunting. When he goes hunting, the bird catches a small fish. 
it comes and it gives a small fish to the king. The king comes back and he asks the Khalifa of Allah, what is in my hand? Ma'mun was speechless. He was puzzled. He said to him, I want you to marry my daughter, Umm al-Fadl. So the Imam, obviously at a young age, refused. And he said to him, you're engaged to Umm al-Fadl. You can marry her whenever you like. <clears throat> We're not going to spend a lot of time examining the life of Imam al-Jawad. But the birth of Imam al-Jawad. And the Imam of Imam al-Jawad was the introduction to the birth of Imam al-Mahdi, which came exactly 60 years later. Imam al-Mahdi was born 60 years after Imam al-Jawad. But the, the birth of Imam al-Jawad introduced the notion of Imam that an Imam could be an Imam at the age 8. He can be an Imam at the age 6. Or he can be an Imam at the age 5. Because the position of Imama is similar to the position of Nubuwa. And just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the position of Nubuwa to Isa ibn Maryam in the time of his birth within the cradle. Isa ibn Maryam he says, Inni Abdullah atani al-kitab wa ja'alani nabiya. When did he say this? He said this when he was in the cradle. In fact, all the books of history state that this was the only time Isa spoke in the cradle. It's not like Isa began to speak at the age one day old and he continued to speak. No, this was a miracle. Then he lived a normal life of a child. He was silent and then he learned how to speak and then he grew up to be like anyone else that speaks you know, at the age of one or two. <clears throat> so Allah chooses a prophet and gives him a book while he could not even speak. Similarly, Allah gives the position of imama to a five-year-old, to a seven-year-old, to a nine-year-old. And this is not, this doesn't stop here. Imam al-Jawad, at that age nine, when al-Ma'mun announced that Ibn al-Ridha is engaged to my daughter Umm al-Fadl. The first person to protest this issue was whom? Yahya ibn Aktham. Yahya ibn Aktham being the grand scholar of his time. He said to him, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen, O the Khalifa, what are you doing marrying your son to Ibn al-Ridha? And you're going around saying he's a genius child. He has ilm al-ghayb. He has the knowledge of the unseen. Ma'mun said to him, it's easy. Test him. Test him. Ask him. And indeed, sometimes, arrogance takes over people when they become blinded. So Yahya ibn Aktham wanted to make a huge event and to expose Imam al-Jawad in front of everyone. So he says, you know what, it's one event, I expose him in front of the whole people, and it's over. And on the contrary, when he gathered 900 scholars, 900 scholars, and he was representing them. He was well in his 70s or 80s. Then they called Ibn al-Ridha, a young boy, he came and he sat down. 
<coughs> Yahya ibn Aktham said, what is your name? He said, my name is Muhammad. And he said to him, Muhammad, can I ask you a question? Mom said, yes. He said, do you claim, do you claim to have knowledge? Imam al-Jawad said to him, I am not amongst the ignorant. I'm not amongst the ignorant. You can ask. So he said to him, Ibn al-Ridha, tell me what is the kafara, the penalty of a person that does hunting in the state of Ihram. Imam al-Jawad looked at him and he said, that is the question? He said, yeah, that's the question. Imam al-Jawad said to him, was it an old man or young? Meaning, was he balagh or was he not balagh? Was it a male or was it a female? Was it inside the haram or outside the haram? Was it inside the masjid or outside the masjid? Was it a free man or was it a slave? Was it a bird or was it a different animal? Was it when a person was hungry and he was hunting to eat or was he was... And he kept giving him 50 scenarios. Yahya ibn Aktham asks one question. Imam al-Jawad responds with 50. Yahya ibn Aktham said to him, why don't you respond to every single one of them? Go ahead. So Imam al-Jawad responded to every one of the questions. When he answered, Yahya ibn Aktham said, thank you very much. You know, we've realized that you, mashallah, have a lot of knowledge. Let's call it a night. Mamun said, Yahya, where are you going? He has to ask you a question too. Yahya said, okay, let him ask. Imam al-Jawad said to him, a man <coughs> looks at something eight times a day. Every time he looks at it, once it's halal and once it's haram, what is it? <coughs> Yahya said, I have no clue. I don't know. So Imam al-Jawad said, it's a man looking at a woman. <clears throat> the first time she's a slave, it's haram. The second time he purchases her, <clears throat> she becomes halal. <clears throat> the third time he frees her, she becomes haram. The fourth time he marries her, she becomes halal. The fifth time he divorces her, she becomes haram. The sixth time he returns her, she becomes halal. Then he does the dhihar and she becomes haram. Then he pays the kafara and she becomes halal. This was the dialogue between Imam al-Jawad and Yahya ibn Aktham and the whole, the whole entire world witnesses. So not only we're speaking hypothetically that yes, this is an imam at, an old, at a young age and Allah gave him the imamah, but historical evidences, the story of imam again, the story of imam al-jawad again in regards to the sujood and other stories <clears throat> that indicate the knowledge of the imam was not the knowledge that he received from books or school. Or it was not even knowledge that he had learned from his father. Because he was a kid. How much knowledge can his father tell him? But it is a position that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to those carrying the position of imamah, similar that he gives to the, pos the position, to those who carry the position of risala or nubuwa.
صلى على محمد وعلى محمد Now the question remains whether Imam Al-Mahdi is alive. <clears throat> because amongst Muslims, there is no controversy that the person who will fill this earth with justice after it's been filled with injustice is Imam Al-Mahdi. And this is not a notion that does not belong to the books of the Muslims. Go and look, for example, at Al-Mustadrak al-Sahihayn. Some of you who are familiar with the books of Hadith <clears throat> within the Sunni school of thought, you're familiar with Bukhari and Muslim. Imam Hakim al-Naishaburi, <clears throat> who came after Bukhari and Muslim, was the author of the book Al-Mustadrak al-Sahihayn. Basically, Al-Hakim said that the same chain of narrators, narrators and transmitters of hadith that Bukhari and Muslim use, I'll use, the same chain, the same individuals that Bukhari and Muslim narrate from, and I'll bring in hadiths that they did not have time or ability to transcribe or compile. So he wrote... Al-Mustadrak al-Sahihayn. The author is Al-Hakim al-Nishaburi. And you should go and look up this book. You should go and search this book on Wikipedia. And see the important role of the Mustadrak al-Sahihayn. And its value amongst the scholars of Hadith remains to be the same significance and importance as Bukhari and Muslim. And the majority of the ulama of hadith have also examined al-mustadrak ala sahihayn just like they've examined Bukhari and Muslim. And one of them is Dhabi. Dhabi has had a, an examination to Bukhari and Muslim and similarly al-mustadrak ala sahihayn. And mustadrak ala sahihayn there is a whole section Entitled Al-Mahdi. And in there, he transmits hadith from Rasulullah that Rasulullah has stated. If there is one day that remains on the face of this earth, then Allah will extend that day so that a man from my progeny will reappear and he will fill this earth with justice after it's been filled with injustice and tyranny, his name is my name, Muhammad. And he is from my progeny and the children of Fatima. Therefore, the notion of Imam al-Mahdi is well embedded in the books of all Muslims. Sahih al-Bukhari also transmits a hadith, كَيْفَ بِكُمْ إِذَا ظَحَرَ بْنُ مَرْيَمْ وَإِمَامُكُمْ مِنْكُمْ Jesus, the son of Mary, will reappear, but the imam will be one of you. Meaning Jesus will pray behind your imam. Similarly, Muslim speaks of the notion of Imam al-Mahdi. And today, if you ask any Sunni alim, they won't tell you that we do not believe in the Mahdi. They believe in the Mahdi, but the only disagreement that remains is whether he is alive today or he's not. 
And I tell you, some of this questioning does not only belong to schools outside the madhab of Ahlul Bayt, but sometimes you find individuals within the madhab of Ahlul Bayt that have doubts. Is he really alive? And if he's alive, he's got to be really old. How can he live for so long? I tell you, the only way for you to actually solve the issue of the lengthy life of Imam al-Mahdi is to prove that he's alive. Now, if he's alive, and if we can prove that he's alive, it doesn't matter if he's 10 days old, or 10 years old, or 10,000 years old, or 1 million years old. As long as he's born, then he's born. And he's going to live until he executes his tasks. And he fills this earth with justice after it's been filled with injustice and tyranny. How do we do this? Simply with two hadiths. One is from Bukhari and one is from Muslim. The first in Bukhari that states the Khulafa after me are 12 and all of them are from Quraysh. Al-Umara min ba'di or Al-Khulafa min ba'di ifnay ashar kulluhum min Quraysh. The successors after me are 12 and they are all from Quraysh. Similarly, Muslim narrates the same hadith Al-Khulafa min ba'di ifnay ashar kulluhum min Quraysh wa min wuldi Fatima and from the children of Fatima. Now we come to any scholar, any scholar, and we ask him, who are the 12 successors? Please tell us, who are the 12 successors of Rasulullah? They tell you the 12 successors, of course, the first one is Abu Bakr, but he's not from the children of Fatima. But let's say, that's fine. Second is Umar. Third is Uthman. Fourth is Ali. Fifth is Muawiyah, or Hassan. Sixth is Muawiyah. That's it. They're not going to tell you Yazid is seven. <laughs> All that, that would be a problem. But the scholars, for the most part, have a consensus that the chain stops at Muawiyah. And some of them do not accept Muawiyah either. So the chain stops at number four, Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen. And they disregard the period after they regard the period after Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen as the period of war and difficulty. So we ask, who is number seven? Who is number eight? Who is number nine? Who is number ten? Who is number eleven? Who is number twelve? There's no response. And I guarantee you, if you search every book and every alim, no one has been able to solve this problem yet. Some of them will tell you, that in the year 101, from number 4, all the way to year 101, there was a gap, and then there was Umar ibn Abdul Aziz al-Amawi, who was number 5, or number 6. How does generations come and go, and then another person becomes a successor of the Prophet? No. So this is the first way to prove that there has to be 12 successors, but does not prove the existence of Imam al-Mahdi. It proves that there are 12 successors and we have a problem. The second hadith states in Bukhari and in Muslim. Whoever 
Whoever dies and does not know the imam of his time dies a pre-Islamic death. A death of jahiliyyah. Meaning he does not die as a Muslim. So today we ask, if we have to have 12 successors, 12 imams, and we have to have an imam today, who is the imam today? Who is the imam today? And the only way, the only place that we can imply the 12 successors from the children of Fatima that is alive today is when we apply it to the 12 Imams of Ahl al-Bayt ending with Imam al-Mahdi Allah ta'ala faraja. And of course, the questioning in regards to the birth of the Imam and why was it kept a secret? Why is it difficult? Why is it that we don't have... This is a completely different lecture. It needs to be examined in a different way, a different night. What remains is now that we know he is alive. What is our responsibility towards the Imam of our time that is alive? And this is an extremely vital point to be discussed. Because when we come, 10 days, 12 days, 15, 20, 30, 60 days of Muharram and Safar, to the Majalis, we constantly hear of the loyal stance of the companions of the Imam, alongside the Imam Abu Abdullah al-Hussein, and, and how they sacrificed themselves for Imam Hussein. And they said to him, if they kill us a thousand times, we will defend you, Ya Abu Abdullah, and we will never neglect you. And they told them, for example, that we cannot see ourselves inseparable from you, Ya Abu Abdullah. What is our responsibility towards our Imam? There are many ways to examine our responsibility towards our Imam. But the best way indeed is to examine our responsibility towards our Imam from the words of an Imam. From the message of the Imam. When you go to the 27th sermon from Nahjul Balagha entitled the Sermon of Jihad. Khutbatul Jihad. As one of the most beautiful sermons in Nahjul Balagha. I don't have time to examine, inshallah, another night I'll be able to examine this, the sermon of jihad. Many people come and ask you in brief, I'll say this, many people come and say, what is jihad in Islam? What does jihad st stand for? And we start with saying jihad comes from the root word jihada and means struggle. And if it's for Allah, then it's holy. And this is jihad. All you need to do is show them the sermon of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen, the 27th sermon of Imam Amir al-Mu'mineen from Nahjul al-Balagha. Say, read this sermon. You realize what jihad means. Amir al-Mu'mineen speaks to his companions of the greater definition of jihad, which is self-struggle. He examines jihad. وَأَمَّا بَعْدْ فَإِنَّ الْجِهَادَ بَابٌ مِنْ أَبْوَابِ الْجَنَّةِ اختارها الله لصالح أوليائه وهو درع الله الحصين وصراطه المستقيم until he continues and he says this وأما بعد فقد بلغني أن الرجل منهم يدخل على المرأة المسلمة 
والأخرى المعاهدة فيسلب منها حجلها وقلائدها فتستغيث باسترحام فإذا فإن امرئا إذا مات فإن امرئا مسلما مما بعد هذا أسفا لما كان عندي ملوما بل كان عندي جديرا به He says I have told you to go and to fight those people and you did not. I told you to go, you said it was cold. I said to you, go, you said it was hot. I told you to go, you said you were busy. I told you to go, you said you're fatigued. I tried to inspire you to go, you did not go. You kept disobeying your imam. You kept disobeying your leader. Now, the army of Muawiyah has reached Ambar. وَقَدْ بَلَغَنِي أَنَّ خَيْلَهُمْ دَخَلُوا الْأَنْبَارِ وَقَتَلُوا حَاكِمَهَا حَسَّانُ بْنُ حَسَّانٍ الْبَكْرِي They have reached Ambar all the way from Sham. They have reached Iraq. And they have killed Hassan ibn Hassan al-Bakri. And they enter onto the Muslim woman. Listen. Onto the Muslim woman. And the other under the protection of Islam. Allahu Akbar. This is Amir al-Mu'mineen. I tell you, we have not been able to tell people who he was. They enter onto a Muslim woman and a non-Muslim woman under the protection of Islam. A Jewish woman, a Christian woman. What do they do to her? They take away her jewelry and necklace. That's all. And they move away. Amir al-Mu'mineen then says, If a Muslim man hears this and dies out of sorrow and sadness, I would not blame him. This is Amir al-Mu'mineen. To defend the weak. Amir al-Mu'mineen could have said, Forget the Jews and the Christians. The Muslim women, they're taking away their jewelry. And they're hurting them and harassing them. No, he says the weak. The Muslim woman and the non-Muslim under our protection. We're supposed to protect them. How are we not protecting them? Then he says, if you die out of sorrow and sadness when you hear this, I would not be surprised. But it would be good news to know somebody cares so much and he would die out of depression and sadness. This is Amir al-Mu'mineen. Then he continues to speak to the people that disobeyed him. And this is what I want to talk about. From his own beloved tongue. He says, Ya ashbah al-rijal. You look like men. Walastum bi-rijal. But you're not men. Why? Because a man is truthful. Because a man is brave. Because a man does not break his allegiance. Because a man does not leave his imam and his leader. Ya ashbah al-rijal, walastum bi-rijal, wahulum al-atfal. So this was his first attack. Then he says, Wallah, he swears, ma'rifatan qaddamat nadama. He says, this relationship between me and you, me knowing you and you knowing me has 
concluded, has ended with sorrow, with regret. I regret that I know you and you know me. I wish you never knew me. Ya laytakum lam ta'rifuni wa lam a'rifkum. I wish you never knew me and I never knew you. This is Amir al-Mu'mini speaking to his companions. Then he continues to say, لَقَدْ خَالَفْتُمْ أَمْرِي وَعَصَيْتُمْ أَمْرِي حَتَّى قَالَتْ قُرَيْشْ إِنَّ عَلِيًّا رَجُلٌ شُجَاعٌ وَلَكِنْ لَا عِلْمَ لَهُ فِي الْحَرْبِ You continue to disobey me. You continue to disrespect me until Quraysh came out and said, Ali is a brave man, but he has no management skills. He cannot manage his people. He cannot manage his companions. He cannot manage his Shia. He says, who became a leader in this ummah besides me? I became a leader before I was 20. And now I'm in my 60s. I've been a leader in this ummah for 40 years. But then he says, but there is no opinion to those who are disobeyed. Meaning my opinion, when it's always disobeyed, it becomes useless. Now we ask ourselves, every one of us, we have an imam. And every day after the majlis we say, Assalamu alayka ya sahib al-zaman, Assalamu alayka ya amin al-Quran, Assalamu alayka ya qibla. Al-aman al-aman and we bow our head and... And in the night of Qadr, تَتَنَزَّلُ الْمَلَائِكَةُ وَالْرُوحُ فِيهَا بِإِذْنِ رَبِّهِمْ مِنْ كُلِّ أَمْرِ When in every year the Qadr, the night of destiny or the night of power, our a'mal is given to our imam. And he looks at the book of a'mal and he says, Jawad, I wish I never knew you and you never knew me. I regret the fact that you even know me. I regret the fact that you call yourself a Shia. What would I tell him? What would my response be that I have neglected my Imam? That I have abandoned my Imam? That when my Imam looks at my book of A'mal, instead of smiling and being happy, and saying the statement of Imam Hussein in the day of Ashura that I have never witnessed companions like your, like those companions. You are the best of companions. They are the most noble of companions. Imam Ja'far ibn Muhammad al-Sadiq. Imam Ja'far. Imam, the founder of our madhab, goes to the companions of Imam al-Hussein. And you know what he tells them? He says, Tibtum. وَطَابَتِ الْأَرْضُ الَّتِي فِيهَا دُفِنْتُمْ وَفُزْتُمْ وَاللَّهِ فَوْزًا عَظِيمًا فَيَا لَيْتَنِي كُنْتُ مَعَكُمْ فَأَفُوزُ فَوْزًا عَظِيمًا In another statement he says بِأَبِي أَنْتُمْ وَأُمِّي Imagine how he speaks to them. He says you are the victorious. Long live your name and the soil that you gave your sacrifice on. Because you knew the value of your imam. 
Because you were loyal to your Imam. Because you gave yourself to your Imam. And today Imam Al-Mahdi doesn't want the same scenario of Ashura. But in the end we tell him we are ready. If you want that from us, we are ready. But today we ask ourselves, what does he want from me? Am I making him happy? Am I making him proud? As a community, are we making him happy? Are we making him proud? We should ask ourselves. This is a vital question. And Imam Al-Mahdi, salawatullahi wa salamuhu alayhi, may see many shortcomings from us. A lot of shortcomings. We all have shortcomings towards our Imam. But I tell you, one thing may bring a smile to the Imam. One thing may allow the Imam to give us another chance and to glance at us with a glance of kindness and compassion. One thing we may do is to allow him to embrace us again. And that is the support of the majalis of his grandfather, Aba Abdullah al-Hussein. Wassalamu alaikum. ورحمة الله